previously on Drinks with Tony. David Eulen. I figured, what the hell? I'm the asshole. <laughs> we both looked at each other like, what the hell is that about? Well, that's not even a good question. Oh, I was just say one other thing. When, you know, I, I remember walking in, I get picked up. I will be disgusted if... Oh, Tony, my pleasure. And now, episode 2.8. Something you'll find in a forest. Dirt. Um, okay. Um, maybe not a forest. A can't something you'll find on a campsite. Fire. Um, Harry. Bigfoot. Oh, 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 um, real Harry. Apes. Um, for campsite food. Scary, scary night campsite. <laughs> I think you should answer this. No, no, no. Um, okay. Um, oh, scary campsite. Um, big, big blank. Are these all one thing or are we doing lots of things? One thing. I don't know. Um, animal. A raccoon. Oh, At a camp. A bear. Yes, oh, bear, yeah. bear. We got it. You know why I was doing that? Because your wall has all those cards, like that, um, like that TV show uh, Pyramid. I don't know Pyramid. You don't know the TV show Pyramid? No, I don't. I don't. With with, uh, did you watch TV as a kid? We didn't have a TV when I was a kid. I'm sitting here doing a stupid game, and it's a sad story in the end. <laughs> it's not that sad. I got a TV later on. Did you? Yeah. So Dick Clark used to host this show called $10,000 Pyramid, and there would be like it would be only one word um, things like you have on the wall behind you. So I just when right when you sat down, I saw a bear. So I decided to play $10,000 Pyramid with you, and it obviously didn't work. Yeah, I'm not very good at that game, I guess. Can you explain the can you explain the words on your door right behind you sir? Oh um so those are the names of uh stories that I have written. That's where I keep track of all the stories that I have and working on <clears throat> the ones on the top. Every every book that I've written has had 40 stories so far, so the ones on the top above the doorknob that's 40. So uh, I just keep writing stories and whenever uh, one seems good to go. It moves up to the top where the 40 are. And then I just keep writing and shuffling stories around on the door until there's 40 up top that I can't imagine losing one of. And then that's the book. And is this for the next one? Yeah. All right, cool. So um, I, was, I was talking about the bear, and, but that's not ready yet. That's, on the, that's toward the bottom of the door. That's, that's toward the bottom of the door, yeah. All right. Yeah, it's there. It's kind of a charming little story, but I haven't looked at it in a while, so I don't know where it's at. See, maybe that's what threw you off on the game. If I went, if I did something like Muhammad Ali, you might have been more on top of that. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right, now we'll start the show. <laughs> don't feel intimidated. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this has been Laurie. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. All right. Now pretend like you like actually liked it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ben Laurie. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. Oh my God.
You 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 take acting cues really well. Thank you. Can you do it sad? This is Ben Laurie. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. That was more quiet than sad. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Ben Laurie. He is the author of Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, and also the book Tales of, Fall- Tales of Falling and Flying. Thanks for being on the show, Ben. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks a lot. That was good. Um, it's great to be here. I'll see you later. <laughs> I don't know why I feel awkward today. Um, maybe because I'm in your house and I'm staring at God which is another story that seems to be ready to go for your next book. Yeah, that one's good. You're probably feeling awkward because I'm an awkward person to talk to. Oh, is that the case? Maybe the energy's kind of going back and forth? Probably so. Oh, okay. Awkward. Awkwardness spreads out from me like waves. Now, is that in general, or is that when you're kind of the focus of attention when we're like talking uh, about you specifically? Well, I don't feel it when I'm alone. How terrible would that be to be so to be so awkward that when you're alone you're awkward with yourself? Actually, I probably have that too sometimes. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it. You know, that's that's one great thing about being a writer is you can get out of the way of that stuff if you want to just go ahead and be alone. But it's also I feel like it's a for me it turns into a bad thing because then I'm alone too much and in my thoughts too much. And then all of a sudden I don't like my brain. I don't know if you get that. Yeah. Usually there comes a point where I, I'm working so hard and then I realize every story is about how I need to get out of the house and meet people. <laughs> <laughs> now, now here's, now here's, now I'm, I, here's two obstacles I see oh, regarding that with you. One, you have an amazing place. Two, you're in Echo Park, which is an amazing neighborhood. I would have such a hard time leaving the house. But then when I left the house, I'd have such a hard time coming back. There's there's so much dilemma right there. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict. makes for a great story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I... Okay, I wish I, I, I got to tell you, we've hung hung out before, but never in this totally intimate, awkward situation. We still awkward? It's getting better. Okay, cool. Um... (laughs) Um, I wish I could write like you. The way you write is so succinct. Like, uh, you, you, when you tell a story in two pages, I feel like I would need 400 pages to tell it and three we, three years in the wilderness. Um, I don't know what the question is, but I, I mean, how do you, how is it that you can distill so much like emotion into something that's like a parable and at the same time fun? It just, everything feels emotional in these stories to me, or I might be on my period. Well, I don't know. I mean, thank you. I, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. They, they're not really like distilled, distilled. People always seem to think that like I spend a lot of time condensing them, trying to get them down into these things, whereas I'm literally writing as much as I possibly can. You know, I don't, I'm not cutting anything out. <clears throat> That's just all that comes out. I think probably because I don't talk very much and I don't really like to talk very much. So I tend to say things as quickly and simply as possible. So that's just how I write them. And then beyond that, the emotion of things comes from just focusing really 
tightly on what characters uh, want and are trying to accomplish and leaving out everything else because I don't care about it. But I think that's just kind of like what happens. It's an outgrowth of how I tell stories and not really the, the plan for them, you know. I just, that's the only way I know how to write stories, so that's how they come out. We were talking, uh, you also te- write, we, we, we both write, uh, we both, we both write, duh. but um, we, we both teach at UCLA Extension. And I do, we were talking and you took the bus from here to UCLA Extension and you, you were telling me it was, you found time to ride on the bus. Do you remember that? Or do you remember taking the bus in those days? I'm, br- I'm bringing back something. I'm, don't you love it? I come here and I bring back a reference from two years ago at a party that we talked <laughs> Well, I still take the bus to and from UCLA every time. Yeah, because I don't have a car. So that's how I, yeah, I used to have a car. And then my car died. Um, And for a while, it was the only car I'd ever owned. I had it for 24 years. And when it died, I couldn't imagine ever owning another car. So I spent some time without a car as I tried to figure out what kind of car I could possibly get. And then in that time, I got really used to not having a car and walking everywhere. Because pretty much I don't leave Echo Park. So anywhere I want to go, I can walk. And the only time I ever go anywhere is when I have to go out to UCLA once a week to teach. So then I found out the bus goes right there, and then I don't have to worry about parking. So the bus is really good for going to UCLA and back, although it wears a little on you after a while, uh, especially after you sit on a mysteriously wet seat. But I don't actually remember writing on the bus. I always listen to audiobooks on the bus. Oh, okay. It's possible I used to sit on the bus and think about stories, but it makes me uh, car sick to even read on a bus, so I don't think I was actually physically writing. Huh. Maybe I was just making up stuff inside my head. Yeah. Maybe I was just drunk and making stuff up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, little de- like I I have like little I have so many gaps of memory, you know. But once in a while, I'll, I'll hold on to a memory, even if I've been drinking with someone like you, and then it comes back up in these goddamn things, and then all of a sudden you're under interrogation. <laughs> it's nice that that's something that you remember, though. <laughs> I guess you're like I'm flattered, but I'm spooked. <laughs> No, I do. For, at least for a while, I spent a lot of time complaining about the bus. Okay. I still complain about the bus, but not as widely. I try to keep it down to a few people that I complain about oh. the bus to. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the bus. Yeah. Am I on the few? Well, I guess so, yeah. All right. All right. Henry, yeah. <laughs> Some of the buses are great. You know, it, it's um, yeah. the number 10 bus that goes down Melrose. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. And the 704, which is like an express that goes down Santa Monica. That's one of those two two buses that are stapled together with an accordion in the middle. That one's great. Yeah. The 90, is it the 92 that goes up to Glendale? That one's like air-conditioned splendor. It's just the number two bus that goes down Sunset. It's like a nightmare. Is it, be, it, is it because it hits so many different neighborhoods where... I mean, are you, the 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 weirdest the, the the stuff I had the I haven't been on the bus too much. The sunset's usually great for me because when I'm on it, it's usually at two a.m. and I've been drinking too much. But uh, the four, man, I I've had some guys like try to start stuff with me, and I'm just sitting there going, I hope you're at the next stop because I'm really not caring and <laughs> and engaging with you. 
Yeah, the two and the four go down the same. It's sort of the same route yeah. that changes somewhere, I forget. Over in Westwood, I think. Yeah, the two goes from downtown all the way to the beach. So, yeah, it, it goes through a lot of different neighborhoods and gets a lot of people. It stops out at some hospitals. Yeah, there's a lot of homeless people on the number two bus and a lot of people who are just completely out of their minds in sort of a frightening way. You know, I don't... People from outside of Los Angeles, and including me, I didn't know this until I came down to L.A., that um, that the public transit is actually pretty damn good when you when you get it settled down. Um, and then Smash Cut will go to something else. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where I was going with that. Maybe no, I, I was really surprised. I didn't think it was possible to take public transportation in Los Angeles. And I had never been on a bus until my car died. Trying to think if that's true. I think that's true. I've never, I mean, never been on a bus in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'd been on the subway one time just kind of as a, not exactly a joke, but just to figure out what it was when they built it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm really surprised whenever I have to go anywhere, no matter where it is, I just like type the address into my phone and then it tells me how to get there on public transportation. And it's always, I always get to within like two or three blocks of wherever I'm going. Right. Sometimes it takes like three hours. <laughs> Well, you can totally do it. I even had to get, I remember I had to go out to Cal Arts one time a few years ago. And I mean, the bus took me directly there. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think, two buses and a train, but right. yeah. But, um, it cracks me up because like if, if I go see shows at the Echo, the two stops right across the street, at, right after the last call. And I just run to it. And then it takes me to my doorstep. It's and it's like a buck seventy five. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's just, yeah, nobody's on it. It's me. I'm talking to the bus driver, and they're just going, "Oh, great, here he is again. This is the talky guy. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's had four drinks and saw a band. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh. Uh, when did you come to L.A. and where did you come from, uh, alien person of Los Angeles, just like myself? Well, I moved here in 1994 to go to film school at the American Film Institute. 1994, is that right? Wow. Yeah. I got married. Wow. Yeah. It's an eventful year. It is. We'll be side by side in the history books. <laughs> you made a better choice. And I grew up in New Jersey, but I'd been in Boston for five years for college and then for sitting around after college trying to figure out what I was doing. Yeah. So, yeah, 20, almost 25 years. Wow. And uh, going to AFI, did, we, did you, did you uh, so your plan was to work in film, essentially? Yeah. Well, I always wanted to be a film director. Um, but I couldn't get into film school for directing because I didn't have a reel to show. So I figured I could get in for screenwriting and then sort of switch over into directing. So I went to AFI for screenwriting and then realized, A, that you can't just kind of switch over. <laughs> and also, B, I spent a lot of time working on film sets while I was at AFI as an assistant cameraman and quickly realized that I was not destined to be a director you have to get up really early in the morning and tell people what to do all the time and act like you know what's happening. And I was just like, yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not for me. I feel like so much of life is just acting like we know what's happening, though. Uh, for me. I, 
Yeah, I feel, I mean, I don't have to do that, I don't think, anymore as a writer. Yeah. Well, I guess as a teacher, I have to do some of that. Yeah. That's the stressful part of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, acting like, acting like you know how to teach? <laughs> yeah, well, acting like you know how to write, first of all. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, in teaching, there's like two parts in teaching. There's a part that I like where people just write stories and then we sit there and read them and talk about them. And I don't feel like I have to do any pretending at all in that part. You know, I just have to say what I think and then ask people what they think. And then we talk about what everybody thinks. Yeah. And that's all fine. And nobody has to pretend anything. But then there's always this part that they want to do at the beginning where you give some kind of talk about it, something and you're supposed to explain how to do things and... I always feel like I'm pretending to tell, pretending A to know how you're supposed to do things. And then I don't know why I'm the one who has to give a speech about it, you know. Somebody else could read out of a book how to do some of this stuff and make a speech about it. But I I mean, personally, I, um, I, I feel like, like when I teach, I feel like everyone just needs to know that the blank page scares everybody, even your best-selling writers. So guess what? how you feel now is never going to change for the rest of your life when you start. <laughs> Just let it go right away. <laughs> You're ruining my day. <laughs> <laughs> I, ruin, I ruin the first class and then see who comes back. <laughs> I usually start short story classes by telling people about uh, how much you get paid for writing short stories. Oh, and then no one comes back. <laughs> I used to do it at the end. On the very last day of class, we would uh -huh. talk about publication markets and stuff like that. And then I would explain that. And then the looks on people's faces would just be like, why did I just spend all this time in this class? So now I, now I do it in the first class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then you know the dedicated people are the ones who are coming back. Right. The ones who can't help themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it is. I just feel like... The only group of weirdos I belong to is writers anywhere else. I mean, I'm already awkward, but I can be around the other awkwards over here in the corner. You're know. doing great. Am I okay? Yeah. <laughs> Today I'm okay. Today I'm holding the mic. I got the big... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's easier when I'm holding the mic. Yeah, it gives you something to do. Right, take yeah. the mic out of my hand. I got it. And... <clears throat> um, so so did uh, so since you went to school for uh, at AFI, did you you worked as a screenwriter for a little bit? Is that right? Yeah. All right, uh, I'll pretend like I asked the question. Did you ever work as a screenwriter? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, thank you. And what else? <laughs> and what was it like, or something? Well, yeah, did you yeah. did you work in the biz for a while? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. It was probably. I mean, it's sort of hard to say how long because it was freelance so i sort of went in and out of it a few times but you know like six or seven years <clears throat> uh nothing ever got made into a movie um i don't know what to say about screenwriting screenwriting is mostly like it's a bunch of cheerleading tryouts really <laughs> like you just constantly are getting calls so-and-so producers or some studio wants they're doing a movie about this based on this book or a remake of this and they want writers to come in and 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 pitch you know like what their take on the material would be so then 
you and I had a writing partner, so you like go and sit in a room for a couple of weeks and do a lot of free work coming up with your idea of how you would treat this material. And then you go in one day and you like tell the producers what your idea is and you talk about it for like an hour or two. And then, uh, you know, 20 or 30 other writers or writing teams come in around the same time and also give their take on the material. And then the producers like go off and they talk about everybody who came in and did their little tryout for the material. And then usually they pick like two or three they're interested in. And then they ask you to do a little more work on that. And you go off and you do some more free work and maybe come up with an outline or a treatment of some kind and come in. And then out of those, they like pick one who they then talk to you for a few more weeks to make sure you're still on the same page. And then eventually maybe they hire you. So that's most of what being a screenwriter is, is doing all that free work in those initial sessions to try to get the job. Uh, and then every now and then you get actually hired for something and then you go off and you write a first draft and then you hand that in after like six months or I forget how long it would take and then they would go off and read it and then they come back and tell you all the things that were wrong with it and then they'd put you in a room where it's like the producer would tell you all the things they thought were wrong with it and the studio people would tell you all the things they thought were wrong with it and the director would tell you all the things that they thought were wrong with it and all those people would have completely different ideas of what they thought were wrong with it and what they thought you should do to change it and then they just say okay go fix it and then you'd be like but you want three different things and they'd say, well, yes, that's why we, we hired you. So then you go off and you try and figure out how to change the thing you wrote to make all these people happy in completely different and conflicting ways. And then uh, eventually you do it or like you do your best shot at that and then you hand it in and then then they read it and then they call you in and they tell you all the ways that you failed beyond belief. <laughs> And then they hire you to do like a polish on that, which is really just a completely new draft because what you've done has been such a misery. I, you understand now? Maybe I wasn't suited <laughs> to this job. I, I'm so like, we we have to get just that lecture right there, and I think that would take out 75 percent of people coming to Hollywood to be screenwriters. <laughs> They need to know. That, I, yeah. That's a PSA you just did, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I look back on that time a lot and try to figure out. I mean, there were a lot of things were different back then. Number one, I really didn't understand anything about storytelling or how to, how to write a story. I didn't really know what I was doing at all, which is a little embarrassing, you know, mm -hmm. looking back on it. Um, also, just but just the way that the whole thing is set up is it just doesn't make any sense. Um but I wasn't good at it, so I always feel bad talking about how unsatisfactory it was because I feel like it was at least half my fault. <laughs> yeah, Pro yeah. Probably more than half, right? If it was Charlie Kaufman, I'm sure he'd have a different take on the on the industry. Although right. maybe not based on adaptation, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It was a hard job. Yeah, it's um, and that's what I love about you know books. We get we get to be the sole. Wait, we're, we're, you know, we're the ones responsible if it's good or if it's shitty and that's it. It's kind of like, it, <clears throat> I mean, stand-up, like, I think stand-up comedians and, like, uh, novelists and story writers, uh, we, we have to stand or die by our work. But comedians get instant back and forth. We get to wait three years until someone finds out. Yeah. That would kill us. When I sold my first book of stories, I handed in the 
I don't even know what you call the manuscript, right? And then my editor went off and read it, and then he sent it back to me with notes on it, you know? And I read the notes, and I mean, they were, you know, there were a lot of notes throughout it, but they were pretty small notes. They weren't like big structural changes. They were not not exactly copy edits. It wasn't like commas, but it was like small notes on individual lines and things like that. And a lot of them made sense, but then a lot of them, like I just didn't like or didn't understand. And I was like, ah, I really have to, do I really have to do this? And I was very nervous about like asking because I was like, what if I, what if I say I don't like this note? Are they going to say they're not going to publish my book? You know, and I was like, but finally I got up the nerve to say, you know, this one note here on, like, I don't know. I don't think I agree with that. Do I really have to do it? And he was like, no, you don't have to do any of them. Like, these are just my personal thoughts. It's your book. You do whatever you want. You don't, you can throw out every single note that I've given you. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, like, I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's one of the best things about being a short story writer. Man, that screenwriting really did a number on you, huh? <laughs> yeah. No, it was a nightmare. It was a literal nightmare. Yeah. It's like getting out of an abusive relationship and then going into a loving one and then going, when are you going to hit me? I don't get it. That's exactly, exactly what it's like. Yeah. Although they did pay you for being a screenwriter, uh, yeah, well, which was nice, yeah. yeah. But you know, yeah. what are you gonna do? Exactly. It's uh, you, um, what's great is you do what you love, and I mean, what you do. I just feel so specific in who you are. You, I mean, if if you read a Ben Laurie story, you know it's a Ben Laurie story without even seeing your name on it. It's that's what's cool about it. Well, thanks. Yeah. And um, let me see what else can I. Uh, um, make you thank me on. Um. <laughs> Thanks for everything. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll just do <laughs> Past, present, and future. I'm just looking for validation here, man. <laughs> this whole show is a sham. <laughs> You're doing great. It's the best show I've ever been on. Have you have, have you been on other have you been on shows where like you, you had like a rough interview like maybe it was in a pro situation <laughs> not like this? <laughs> um, I've had some weird interviews. Yeah. You know how one of the and now I feel bad because now everyone's gonna go and look at those interviews. But yeah, so I had one when my first book came out. I was on the Leonard Lopate show in New York City. Who I didn't know who he was but he's a big deal apparently if you live in new york yeah. um <clears throat> he got like fired recently for sexual harassment oh, and stuff but yeah. anyway up until then he was he was a big deal and so i went on his show on the radio and uh i went in to do the show and uh the producer came out and met me in the green room and asked me a lot of questions about myself and my work. Like, it was kind of like a maybe an hour-long interview in the green room with a producer, not with the guy whose show it was. Um, and she asked me a lot of questions. I liked her a lot. She was great. And asked me tons of questions and felt like we understood each other perfectly, you know? And then she was like, okay, uh, it's time for you to go on the air now. And walked me into the room where this guy's sitting behind you know the desk with the big microphone he's got the earphones on he's staring down at this uh what i later figured out was like a computer screen set into the table in front of him uh which uh, is showing i guess what somebody in some other room i think his producer is like typing to him on the screen um so like i go in and he's 
he's like on the radio, you know, and he's like, and now here's Ben Laurie coming into this. Like, I've never met him. I don't, I didn't shake hands with him before. He hasn't even looked at me, you know, I'm just like, and I sit down at the thing and he starts reading me questions off of the, off of his screen, you know, and, and he asked me like the first question and you, you may have noticed this about me, but I'm not very, I'm not a self-starter when it comes to talking. <laughs> like, if you ask me a question, I'll answer it as quickly and simply as possible. And then if you want, you can follow that up and get me to actually explain it. But otherwise, I'm not just going to sit there. Now I suddenly notice I've been talking for like an hour and a half. But <laughs> but so he, he asked me like the first question. I don't know. I can't reconstruct the whole thing. But he would ask me a question. And then I would answer very quickly and simply. And then he would just read the next question off of his little screen he wasn't he didn't ask like any follow-up questions at all so it was just like a very <laughs> very bizarre simple interview where i mostly just said yes and no and stuff and i i don't think it was very good i never listened to it afterwards that was an awkward one well i, I gotta tell you i don't really listen to uh what you know, i've done drinks with tony for many years i don't listen to the shows because i'll get too self aware and I don't want to think about it. I just want to be in the moment when I show up. Yeah. <clears throat> did the guy even look at you during the interview? I, I'm sure he did. I can't even remember what he looked like though. So yeah. part of that's probably just the stress of the situation. Yeah. But I don't like I just remember him staring down with his headphones on, reading the things off the screen. What a fucking hack, man. <laughs> I just I like interviews that are conversations, not this, you know, yeah. panned pretend stuff. I think I was expecting like Terry Gross or something right, like that, you right. know, but uh, no. So anyway, yeah. there have been some other ones, but that was the, that was the hardest, I think. Yeah. And that was your first book, too. Was that what was it like when um, you're, you're getting attention for um it probably felt not only awkward, but like very, uh, uh, this is your personal work in such a huge way, more than anything else you put out. Am I putting words into your mouth? Uh, no, no. Okay. Go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like I gave you a great cue there. Um, so when you're, when you're on your first book tour, um, what was, what was the feeling like for you when you had to go do these interviews? Um, and it's your first book and you're not sure, I, I don't know if you're sure yet how it's being received publicly or if you're even worried about that. Maybe you weren't even worried about it and you're just like, let's just get me to Minneapolis for the next one. I wasn't worried about it. You know, I had a very different, I didn't know anything at all about the yeah. publishing business, which I guess probably the same for every writer. Right. Yeah. But I, my, my take on publishing was that like you wrote a book and then they published it and then you know, it was like on the front page of the New York right. Times. <laughs> and then like your check for a million dollars arrived like maybe two weeks later. Right. And then you didn't have to do anything for the rest of your life. You know, that was that was the deal. You know, so I I wasn't worried about anything. I was just like, well, OK, here it is. Now I'm I'm on the radio. This is, you know, tomorrow I'll be on the front of the New York Times and then my million dollars comes. So <clears throat> I was just kind of enjoying it. It was uh, it was great to go around and read stories. I really like doing readings. I love reading my stories to people. So that was all great. The interviews were always a little awkward. 
Um, but it was fine, you know, drank a little whiskey and took my magic pill and <laughs> everything, everything was great. It's almost like ignorance is bliss. Um, because I felt the exact same way. I was just like, here we go. I'm going to be on a chariot down market street and there for, you know, when the mayor gives me the key. Yeah, totally. The key yeah. to the city. Yeah. 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 Do those still exist? I don't know. <laughs> I never get one anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and then, and then, I mean, and then you go out for your second book, and you realize what the reality of life is as a writer. Then, then what? What's it like when you tour for uh, tour for your second book, and you're kind of a grizzled veteran at that point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, there was a book in the middle, which I wrote a children's book. It was oh, like that's a, right, that's right. it was like a picture book for kids, which I loved so much. It was called The Baseball Player and the Walrus. And I loved that they got this guy, Alex Latimer, to do the illustrations. And they are so perfect. And I just loved the book so much. And um, but on the publishing end of it, I went through three editors during the time. Like one of them left. Another one just quit publishing and moved to Australia. And so the, the editor I had when the book finally came out was someone who didn't know me, <laughs> wasn't there during the production of the book. She just came in like at the, in the last couple months. And, you know, so anyway, she didn't really care. I don't blame her. It's not her project. She's right. like covering for someone who was covering for someone else yeah. who originally bought the thing. Um, but I remember when the book came out, <clears throat> it was like, you know, it came out and then it's like the day it's out and I'm just there looking around like, so, so what, what happens? Does yeah. anything happen? You know, and like nothing happened, like nothing, yeah. nothing at all happened. So like I did one reading I don't even know if you do readings for children. I still don't understand. I did one reading for it at um, at Skylight Books because my friend Cecil had a book coming out, and she so so I kind of hopped onto her uh-huh. book launch, and that was the only event that I did with the book um, because of Cecil. Uh, so yeah, it was that was a probably as precipitous a drop as I could imagine from the first book. So I learned that lesson. <laughs> real fast uh-huh. that uh i was really lucky the first time around which i did not i didn't understand that at the time yeah yeah so that brings the question why do we still do this shit i mean it's a good question i, I really like writing the stories so that's that's why i do it uh but yeah it gets it gets tough when that million dollar check never shows up <laughs> Even when the hundred dollar check doesn't show up, <laughs> yeah. There's there's one kind of big magazine out there. I won't name the name of it, and um, I had to almost be like a collector to get my two hundred and fifty dollars. And it's this magazine that's like all alternative, we're for writers and everything. And I'm like, why am I calling you four months after publication? I, it just that's when my ire goes up because I get all righteous about you know paying the writers. Yeah, no, it can be tough. Yeah. can be tough. Even like these, oh, well, now we're going to go on my problems, right? Mm-hmm. Like even these readings, like, like these readings who have a cover charge, when they don't drop any cash to any of the writers, it drives me crazy. Well, I used to do, uh, I used to set up readings in San Francisco, and we always paid the writers. And that's probably because I used to do stand-up comedy. So even in stand-up, you always got 20 bucks no matter what. So at least you had lunch the next day, and you did your five-minute set or whatever. And they would charge $10 cover pack a room and the writers wouldn't see a thing it would all go to the person who hosted it for the little magazine they were working on that 
we're all supposed to help. I, you know, and it's, it still drives me crazy to this day. Um, I, you don't seem like you have any feelings regarding that. You're not as, I, you're not as pissed off about it as I am. Arr. Well, uh, the thing is I would never go to a reading where they charge money yeah. to get in. Yeah. I mean, that's not true. I have been to a couple readings where they charge you money to get in, but it's, you know, few and far between and only it's like if my friends ran it right. or something like that, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay money to go to a reading. Yeah, it really sucks because uh, the, the way they some of those people set it up. I've learned, though, that what you do is if your friends are reading and there's about 10 readers and they're charging, just wait um, for about three readers in. The usually doorman walks away and you walk right in. That's a, that's a lesson for all you kids out there who want to rip off uh, people doing reading series. Hot tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a life hack. We got to come up with life hacks as writers. I mean, because we got sporadic income, you know? I don't, I don't know how it works for you, but like. Credit cards. <laughs> Credit cards are like writing retreats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have any life hacks. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I'm, I see, uh, so. You know, I saw I saw a photo of the you in the L.A. Times. I wonder if I may or may I'll just take a photo of this myself of your wall. Is that okay? If I I mean later, um, and you looked at me like I was going to take a photo of you naked, which is in the plan as well. But you seem more awkward about the wall. <laughs> just wasn't planning for it. <laughs> yeah, just let me get a little aroused first, and then it looks bigger. So the door. Um, no, anyway, all right. Let's, uh, now, see, now I got you focusing on the door. <laughs> no, I just, I just love it. I love that you're. How far are you on this next book that I'm looking at right now on the wall? Actually, do you want me to not take a photo because um, that was you're you're in the middle of it, or? No, it's fine. All right, so I'll take I mean, a photo later. Yeah, okay. yeah. You, if you can get a poster on the front of the New York Times, <laughs> even better. I think the best I can do is drinkswithtony.com, everybody. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty, you know, it's going well. I don't know. I'm always rethinking what I'm doing. Um, So if this was a book of 40 stories, which has always been the plan, then I probably have, I mean, I have 40 stories there. And of those, probably like 30 are good to go. Good to go in the sense of almost perfect and as perfect as I can get them anyway. And then 10 are sort of a mess, but... I know that those are the right stories. Um, and then I just need time to actually work on those stories, which I haven't had for a while. And But then recently I've been thinking about expanding it and making it maybe 50 stories this time around, uh, which would take a little longer. So I don't really know. It's hard to judge. I, I remember when I was writing my first book, there was this period where I, every time people would call me up and ask me to go out to do something, I'd be like, oh no, I'm almost done with my book. It's like two more weeks. And then, I'll, and that period went on for two years. <laughs> yeah. So who knows? I feel like with like concerted effort, it would probably be four months, but uh, I haven't done any writing at all since, no, since August now. So just looking for some free time. Um, buzzed. What? <laughs> Whiskey. 
can't turn around. What are you doing? <laughs> I hate this game. <laughs> I was looking at the card drunk. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. It's a story about some drunk people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one. This one. This one I know you get. Catholic. <clears throat> the Vatican. Whoa. Ding, we got $10,000. Right. <laughs> I can't believe you haven't watched Pyramid. Uh, I think even Donny Osmond hosted Pyramid for a while. I, you got to look it up on YouTube, dude. It's so dumb because they got, what they would do is they would get a celebrity. It's like some C-list celebrity who would come out and then, uh, and then it would, then the game show host would be there. So like like me, I would be the celebrity and you'd be the person that was winning. So, you know, I'd be like, oh, I got, you know, I got two weeks next week on Love Boat, but I got this gig too. And it was like so hyped up. So that's why I just keep playing this game in my head. It's really my problem. <laughs> it's okay. I'm glad to be here for you. Yeah. What, um, do you have a self-imposed deadline or do you, or is there a deadline for this book? There's no deadline. No. Okay. Self-imposed deadlines come and go. Yeah. At the same time, since they're short stories, do you try to get them placed before they get into publish? Before they get published? Yeah. Okay. Um, trying to think, I'd have to look around and count in order to know how many of these forty have already been published. And I mean, probably about fifteen of these have been published oh, right. already. Yeah. yeah. That's what's great about short stories. That. Yeah. <laughs> the grass is always greener. It's like I, I, I read your short stories. I'm like, I don't know how I would do that in 300 pages. I think I'd need 350. <laughs> it's like... uh, My agent is always telling me that I should take one of these stories and expand it into a novel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then I always say, how? Like, how? Yeah. Like, I have no idea how you would do that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't even write short stories anymore. I used to be able to write short stories. Now I can only think 200 plus pages. I don't know what my problem is, but it, it's a huge problem because I'm still working on things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, maybe that's teaching too because I've been teaching novels so much and pushing novels so much that I'm always thinking of the large arcs and the subplots and all of that. So, yeah. Everyone thinks the other side's easier. Like even, oh, it must be so easy to... Oh, like when I when I uh, adapted my book to the screenplay. Oh, that must have been easy for you to do. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that was the worst idea ever. Yeah. How do you teach novel writing? Um, well, for the you know for the most part, I the, I get right into character. So, and people come in there with their grandiose ideas, and I, so right away, I try to get everyone on equal scumbag level. Like we're all weirdos, um, you know. Uh, depending on the group, I'll be like, we're all pieces of shit. And even, you know, even best-selling authors will come in here and say they feel like imposters. So as long as you know you feel like an imposter and it's always going to feel weird, then you know that you're in the game and you're and you're writing. Uh, and then, then we go over the um, essentially most you know most novels are one uh, you're, you have a hero, uh, the, the character that we follow through the novel. Everyone wants to know what's the plot devices. How do we do plot? What page? What? And I'm like, no, you need a good character. After you got your character drilled in, then all of that kind of falls into place in a weird way. But, but yeah, but this is about you. Why are we? Well, how did you do that? <laughs> you just, uh, I was interested. <laughs> I wanted to know. Look at your own podcast. 
You didn't have to answer. <laughs> have you ever thought about doing the podcast? Yeah. I mean, hasn't everybody, you know? But I don't know. I feel like I would have to, like, read people's stuff and do a lot of homework and find out things about people and have thoughts about things. And it sounds complicated. And and look how I'm doing it. Yeah, I don't have any of that. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I would. I thought about um, doing, like, a, you know, a fictional podcast. Mm-hmm. Like a radio drama, basically. But that just seems like an endless amount of work. So I'm probably not going to do that. Yeah, it's... um, Man, those fiction podcasts, though, everyone's eating them up right now. I wish I could do it, but I just... My brain can't wrap around beyond just talking to a person in an honest way. Uh, Putting fiction in there, that would confuse me. Yeah, it seems like it would be like writing a screenplay, except even harder. Yeah, yeah. Right, because you don't have the visual element to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, when you're not working on writing, what, what's 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 some of the uh, what's what's some of the things in your life that uh, that excite you or disgust you? Either one. Well, my life for the last like month now has just been watching movies on Filmstruck because they Filmstruck is going out of business. Right, right. So my to watch list on Filmstruck, which was. I was thinking of as like the rest of my life I had to watch. <laughs> Suddenly I had to watch them all in the next month. So I've been watching like four movies a day on oh. Filmstruck, which is getting a little old right now. So now I'm sort of starting to look forward to it going away so I can stop this. But <laughs> but that's been that's been my focus. So after this, are you do you have a couple movies you have to watch that are on your list? Oh, yeah. There's you know a ton. Well, I've been watching a lot of Lon Chaney movies, so uh, He Who Gets Slapped is my next big Lon Chaney movie. I haven't heard of him. Who is that? Lon Chaney? Yeah. Yes, you know Lon Chaney. He was the Phantom of the Opera in the original silent Phantom of the Opera. He was the Hunchback of Notre Dame in the original Hunchback. Um, He was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. He was also the guy who... Because he could, he could make himself up as any character. He he was a, sort of also the guy who invented makeup for film. Oh wow! Before <clears throat> they had makeup departments at studios, right. actors had to do their own makeup, and they didn't really know how to do makeup for film because they were just using makeup from stage, right. which didn't always translate into film. And Lon Chaney kind of invented like modern makeup for movies. So I've been watching a lot of Lon Chaney, and then uh, I discovered this director, William Wellman, who I never knew existed, although I'd seen a lot of his movies. Um, so he, I guess most famously, he made the original version of A Star is Born, okay. um, and also wrote it. So all the remakes of A Star is Born, somebody in William Wellman's family get, get some checks for that. And he also made um, Public Enemy, which is oh, yeah. that... James Cagney one where he smashes the grapefruit into his girlfriend's face. That's the famous scene from Public Enemy. Those are the two movies that I knew by him, but I'd never heard of William Wellman. But he made a lot of movies in the early... Well, he made 80 movies over his career, but he made a lot specifically in the early 30s before the Hayes Code went into effect in Hollywood, which was when they decided... 
that movies had to be upright and decent and couldn't glorify sex or violence or anything like that. Uh, so there's like this little window of time in the early 30s when movies were really great and about regular people um, before it all turned into like Hollywood schmaltz. And William Wellman was really big director right in those like four or five years. So I've just been watching all those pre-code movies by William Wellman. Yeah. Uh, probably about 15 of those in the last couple of weeks. When you when you watch those, do you ever get the inkling of going back to being a director and just saying, how can I do it outside of the studio system and just go down and dirty? I mean, no, not really. Okay. I mean, I always think about it. You were exciting me when you were yeah. talking about it. Like, why why yeah. are we both directing now? Yeah. I mean, I love movies more than anything, really. But uh, I don't really... I don't have the energy or really the desire at this point to make a movie. Um, I still think about going back and writing screenplays again, but even then I'm like, like my belief that what I would write would actually be made into a movie and the movie that I wanted it to be is just so small at this point. What I think about now is going back and getting like a PhD in cinema studies just yeah. so I could sit around and watch old movies and write essays about <laughs> old movies all day long and make people watch them in class for some reason. I'd, that that would be fun, but probably too old to do that. Also, I've never actually written anything about, yeah. you know, never really written like an essay about a movie since I graduated from college anyway. Yeah. So, But that might be a plan. I might be doing some of that this year, I've been thinking. That would be fun because... Then instead of like it being wasted time, it would be yeah. you'd be you'd be Doctor Ben Laurie at some point. <laughs> yes, which is worth millions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all about those millions. <laughs> um, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you something. I had a thought in my mind, and I it always goes like this. Um, we were talking about the movies and your book. I don't know. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> you take over for a minute. I ain't gotta get. I don't think I have any questions. You yelled at me when I asked the last one. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was for comedic effect. <laughs> Is that, no, you know what's gonna you know what's gonna happen? Three years from now, you're gonna be like, I'll see you, and you're gonna be like, oh yeah, there's uh, Tony Duchesne. He's the guy that yells at you. And and I'll be like, no, no, you're the guy that rides the bus and writes. <laughs> that'll be our that'll be our references. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll ask me about Lon Chaney. How's Lon Chaney doing? <laughs> oh wait, I have one more fact about Lon Chaney. Yeah, which is I read this on his Wikipedia page. He made 157 movies, and 100 of them have been lost. Like they're just gone. Nobody, wow. no, nobody saved them. They're just nobody knows where they are. They're just missing. Wouldn't it be crazy if like 30 of them were in someone's garage in Idaho? Yeah. yeah. They found some of, I think, The Passion of Joan of Arc, this old silent movie. They It turned up in like a like a, a mental institution in Sweden somewhere on like a top shelf in a closet somewhere. They just discovered it. Yeah. So it can happen. Uh, now, I, now, as a short story writer, short stories tend to, be great vehicles towards screenplays. Has anyone optioned a short story, or have you thought about um, putting it out there in that way, in that way? I mean, I would love that. No, nobody has done it for a feature. People have made 
like cartoons. Uh-huh. Yeah, a couple, a couple times people have optioned them for cartoons. And one of them got made. There was the one about the duck story from, I can't remember the name of my own book, Stories for Nighttime. There was a story called The Duck and that, that got made into a cartoon. And um, a couple others have been made into sort of short films. <clears throat> but nobody's ever made a feature. I mean, I would love that. Uh, what I really like would be to do kind of like a Twilight Zone TV show oh. out of them. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, if you can make that happen, that would be great. I already see you as the host. <laughs> Seriously. Have you thought about that? No. <laughs> I have not. Because you, you, you would have the perfect delivery because you could have the most whacked out stories, but you are you have such an even keel delivery that would be even freakier. It would just be like, holy shit, this guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> that, that, I, just, I, I love I just like, I get a kick out of juxtapositions like that. Um. Jesus. Oh, we're back to this game now. I don't know. Zeus. Oh, God. Hey, $10,000. Yeah, I'm winning my own game. <laughs> Let's just reference that there are cards behind you of your stories on the wall. <laughs> it doesn't sound like that we're both on acid. <laughs> Even though we are, this is great acid, by the way. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it just kicked in. <laughs> Don't you wish I sat on where you're sitting and you sat where I'm sitting? Because because I would have I wouldn't have anything to uh, bug you about. You could ask me questions about that lamp. Oh, but see, you would have to ask me questions about. You'd have to tell me things, and I'd have to figure out what you're talking about. That's the pyramid game that you're gonna watch. I want you should watch that. Just look on YouTube later. You'll understand how dumb it is. I'm <laughs> keep bringing it up. So I'd be like shade. Right, right, right. Bulb. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, um, flower. Uh, garden. Pot. Uh, marijuana. Pot. Um, oh, marijuana. On the game show, they do it that fast, so there's so it's a lot. They know there's not a lot of contemplating because there's a there's a little time on it. Yeah, I don't think I'd be very good at that game. <laughs> Maybe I could be the host. Yeah. 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 What does he do? Um. Up next, we have um. You know, uh, Reed Diamond, uh, our celebrity guest this week. <laughs> yeah, that's my job. <laughs> Much less stressful. And then, when the camera pulls away from you, I can just see you rolling your eyes for the whole segment, and then it comes back to you. <laughs> Why do I feel like I'm torturing you now? I don't know. <laughs> Who can say? I just you're 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 actually cringing. You're 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 pulling smaller. That's why. I'm We're going to talk about a TV show you've never seen next. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I get, I get not having references because I grew up Jehovah's Witnesses, so I couldn't watch like Aryan movies and like all these type of movies as kids or even Saturday morning cartoons. I was preaching. So people were like, what, you don't know that? It came on every Saturday. I was like, no, I was knocking at your door with a Bible. 
Yeah. So, well, I didn't get any cartoons. You didn't get any? Well, we didn't have a TV. Oh. Yeah. What am I complaining about? Jesus. We got to go to the movies, though. My parents would take us to the movies because we didn't have a TV. So we'd go Is to the movies. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I saw a lot of movies. A lot of R-rated movies. Did when you? I was very young, my parents didn't know or care, maybe, about, like, children's movies. Yeah. <clears throat> so we just went to see whatever my parents were interested in. Wow. Yeah, we never went to see, like, Disney movies or anything for kids. So you're like, man, when I go to the theater, it's nine and a half weeks, and it's a bunch of boobs and sex. Yeah. Wow. And then, you know, like... Seven or eight years later in school, everyone suddenly had HBO and they started staying up and watching these movies on HBO. And then they'd all talk about them at school and they'd ask me if I'd seen them. And I'd be like, yeah, when I was like five, but I don't, <laughs> but I don't remember it. Right. You know? So it's like double the frustration. Yeah. I, when, yeah, when my parents got HBO, I would I would sneak and go watch the TV late at night, hoping for the for just to see like a nipple or something that I could see a naked woman. That the, I would, the whole I watched all of Barfly, <laughs> thinking because it was R, thinking there was gonna be nudity in it before I even knew what Bukowski or writing was, and it was the worst idea ever. <laughs> That's like the Simpsons episode where they go to see Bart and Fink because it's rated R. <laughs> Really? Yeah. 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 They're sitting in the back of the car and they're chanting Barton Fink. Barton Fink. <laughs> yeah. There's what, a. Oh. And do they walk out and just go, why? <laughs> why did we do that? I mean, I love that film, but for a kid who's thinking they're going to see a great R rated movie. I don't remember if there's a, an after part. I only remember that I'm driving to it. There's a. Um, is it cool to talk about other podcasts on oh, your yeah, podcast? Yeah, please do. One of my favorite podcasts is this thing called uh, Hellbent for Horror. Uh -huh. And it's just this guy. There's never any guests or anything. It's just this guy talking. He talks about horror movies and, and books and stories and stuff. But um, over the course, yeah, if you listen to it, you have to start at the beginning, number one, and move forward. Because over the course of him talking about all these different things, he also, like the story of his life comes out over the wow. span of it, and yeah. which is fascinating. Um, so, but so I'll ruin it for you now, which uh -huh. is that he grew up in sort of like farmerland Pennsylvania. Yeah. Out in the middle of nowhere. They weren't Amish, but his at some point his parents joined some sort of, cult kind of thing where they believed in actual demons mm -hmm. that were around you all the time invisible like in the room yeah that were always like trying to tempt you to do mm -hmm. things and it was like i think his mom who was really into it and then his dad sort of went along into it and but the kid was growing up when they joined this cult and I mean, I think he was like five or something, and he's trying to figure out like what's going on, if this is true or not, um, if there really are demons in the room, and etc. And he's really scared about that. But then at the same time, this is in like the very early 70s, at the same time, HBO, which doesn't exist yet, HBO does like a trial run um, of this new thing where they're gonna just show movies all the time into people's homes on cable and they they do like the trial run in this kid's like hometown 
um, without really telling anybody, it's just this channel pops up and starts showing like horror, horror movies. Wow. And so suddenly he's like, I don't know, he's like six or seven and he's just like watching like Don't Look Now and The Exorcist and all these things. And like nobody knows that this channel is there and his parents don't know that he's watching. And he's just watching all these horror movies and thinking about demons and trying to figure out if his mom is crazy or if God is trying to lure him or i guess that would be satan not god yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway it's a good podcast hellbent for horror hellbent for horror it sounds great i understand that because i i know about having the demons and the angels always watching you and um and i mean i still can't watch like even though i've been out of the jehovah's witnesses for like 18 years i still can't watch things like the exorcist or anything like that because i'm there's that little thing in me where it's like the demons are going to come in if you watch that and i don't i still have to go to therapy for that part of it well, maybe maybe it's not the podcast for you then. No, but what, I want to know. I want to. I want to hear how he arcs it because that just sounds fascinating. I, I love it that the, his story is so deep, and it doesn't start out deep. It probably starts out kind of like just a tale, and then all of a sudden you're brought more in. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. Yeah. yeah. You, you thought I'd be jealous of other podcasts? I just didn't know if there were rules. You know, like oh, there's no rules. yeah, no rules. Okay. No, no. Just didn't want to be rude. Oh, you're so kind. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could have been a dick about it and go, oh, yeah, and then just edited it out. You know, <laughs> just be like, you do whatever you want. And you'd be like, where's the whole hell bent for horror? That, he didn't even put that in. What happened? <laughs> There's just a shh over that part of the interview. When I was in high school, a lot of, I didn't go to a very good high school. Um, and a lot of times the teachers would just bring in the TV cart and they'd show us a movie for yeah. some, yeah. like, vaguely related to the class kind of right. thing. Sometimes not related to the class at all. And we watched The Breakfast Club a whole lot. I don't oh, know. Wow. I don't think it had anything to do with anything. But we watched The Breakfast Club many times. <clears throat> and But they had to cut out all the swearing. But they didn't have any, like, uh, there was no, like, special equipment to, like, cut out the swearing so some kid or somebody over in the av department it was their job to watch the movie and then when somebody swore they would like back up a second and then hit record and just record <laughs> static over Whoa. so both the visual and the audio would just go to static for like a split second yeah whenever anybody swore and sometimes it wasn't quite on the <laughs> on the money and you get like half the word and anyway it's very disorienting to watch a, a movie with like 750 <laughs> static bursts throughout i want to see that i wish there was a i wish there was a way that was out if that was on youtube do you know how many hits that would get because that would be something so much fun just to watch for the quirkiness of it yeah it seems like something that would be in a museum somewhere yeah I love that they I love they did the static over the video too, not just the audio. But I guess they 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 only had access to the VHS track or whatever. So yeah, yeah, it's all or nothing. <laughs> hey Ben, thanks so much for talking with me, man. Oh, thanks for having me. It's over so soon. <laughs> oh, we can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Another hour, you got it, Ben. I know you want it. Look at that, you want it. <laughs>
Ben Laurie, everyone, a fantastic writer. Definitely pick up his work if you can. And here's one from the archives of Drinks with Tony, Daniel Close. He's the author of um, Eight Ball, Ghost World, Art School Confidential, actually more of a graphic novelist. But he wrote the screenplay for Art School Confidential, which was directed by Terry Zweigoff, and it was released in 2006. This is where, um, this is where I caught up with him. I think I interviewed him twice. I don't know which time this was. Uh, so this is from the Drinks with Tony archive in 2006. And also Daniel Close wrote the screenplay to Wilson, which came out last year or the year before. And that stars Woody Harrelson. Thanks for listening. Enjoy segment two of Drinks with Tony. <laughs> this is going to go to shit now. Yeah, yeah. You've already taken long time. <laughs> anyway, um... Hi, Daniel. Uh, I can't even say it right now. Screw it. I'm going to – I'll say it in the introduction. Uh, but Art School Confidential, this was your first screenplay that you wrote without having a um, a comic attached to it, right? Am I right? Well, you know, there actually was a – there's a four-page comic strip I did in 1991 called Art School Confidential. But oh, it's okay. uh, it's uh, it's more like a mad magazine, you know, like the lighter side of art school kind of thing rather than an actual story so it's if i had adapted that directly into a film it would have been about four minutes so you know this there's a lot of new stuff in the film yeah yeah so what was um what what's that process like one going from comic uh writing comics to screenplays and then not even having too much of a basis um from your comic um art for a script, just coming from a script, are you? Um, do you actually do any sketches while you're writing your script? Or is- yeah, you know, I found that uh, coming from comics, like I had to, I had to sort of have a visual idea of what the characters looked like in order to write it. I, I started out writing this art school screenplay, and I, I just didn't quite have a handle on the characters, and so I got a sketchbook and I just did sketches of every single character. I did like, you know, 60 little drawings until I got them exactly the way I wanted them to look and then it was it was much much easier to write after that. Uh-huh. Did any of those drawings help in casting? You know, it's it's funny. I I got out the sketchbook to show to the casting woman and and it, we got the idea it was just sort of throwing her off because it's like she figured that we wanted people who looked exactly like these people and it wasn't really about their looks but just sort of about their overall feel and so we kind of took it away and then and then later after the after the film was all cast I went through the book and it's really amazing how how exactly some of the actors looked like the drawings and and then some were so diametrically different that it it was really interesting they were either exact or or way off yeah um, will that be something we'll see in the DVD release? Your sketches, hopefully. Maybe so. There's there's actually a uh, a book of the screenplay where I put I put a couple pages of those. But okay. maybe I'll do like a facsimile edition someday or something. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and I I know the it seems like some of it's got to be autobiographical. How autobiographical was? Um, this film, particularly the John Malkovich uh, played professor, was did you have anyone in mind when you were um, writing him? Um, yeah, though I shouldn't get any more specific than that. <laughs> um, um, the you know I I did go to art school in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and and 
you know, my experience was, uh, you know, a kid from Chicago moving to the heart of Brooklyn, New York, right during the, the most crime filled years. And it was so that my experience in art school was this, you know, this crazy uh, scene, this kind of art school world and the sort of the throes of the, the early 80s art boom and then living in this really dangerous, scary pre-Giuliani New York. And it, it, so it was this really kind of exciting trial by fire kind of experience for me and it, this movie is in some way sort of a dream version of that almost where it's it's like having a nightmare about my years in art school and what's that like for you seeing um parts of your life on the big screen it's very it's a very strange experience it's like it's like being able to project your thoughts in a way it's it's uh you know, and it, it, of course, I have such specific ideas of how everything would look that for something to be even slightly off is very frustrating. And it, of course, the process of making movies, especially when I'm not directing the movie myself, it's uh, you know, it's a very collaborative thing. And and so it's just an, it's an odd experience to see your sort of your vision of the world as filtered through somebody else's vision. It's it's uh, can be very disconcerting in a way. Are, are you on set when they're sh- when he's shooting? Yeah, yeah. Both uh, Ghost World and, and this film, I was I was around pretty much the whole time, just kind of to give him moral support. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was there any re- was there any last minute re- rewrites or let's do this? Too? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that's especially on low budget films. I think you're always having to rewrite. You know, you're finding out. You get there in the morning, and the and the there's you know horrible street noise or something, and you have to move to a different location all of a sudden, and have to rewrite entire scenes based on a new location, or you realize you just don't have time to shoot four pages, and you have to cut it down to two things like that. Yeah, yeah. So you have to really think on your feet, which is not easy when you have to get up at five in the morning and go to the set. It's a it's a crazy experience. It's really you know you have six weeks or so of just you know daily insanity 12 hours a day it's really it'd be fun to make a movie if you could work like three hours a day on it (laughs) but i can sort of see why they wouldn't want to spend the money for that right right and the continuity of uh hair and beard and all that would probably (laughs) you know there's a guy whose job it is to look for all that but even so the guy is always missing stuff because there's so much going on and I would find myself saying, no, that, you know, that pen moved in that shot. And, you know, a lot of it doesn't matter. You know, people go, who cares? Nobody will ever notice that. You know, if you watch movies after after having made a movie, if you watch like a restaurant scene where they're cutting back between two angles, you'll see like glasses moving all over the place and stuff. They're just flying around, even in really like good directors films like the Coen brothers, people like that. It's nobody really cares about that stuff. And I don't think you notice it until you've had to watch movies in an editing room hundreds of times and all of a sudden that stuff becomes very very uh, prominent and it's very frustrating <laughs> as a movie watcher yeah i love i love cigarettes if there's a cigarette in the scene i want to see the ash always <laughs> wrong. and this you know since this movie set in art school every character smokes and so it's you know don't please don't watch the ashes in this film that's all i can say <laughs> Yeah, I, well, actually, um, I watched it last night, and I didn't see too much, but... Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, watch it four more times. Okay. <laughs> um, what, what's it like collaborating with uh, Terry, and how did you and him hook up? You know, Terry just uh, was a was a reader of my comics years ago and thought I might be a good guy to work with um, after he was 
had finished his film Crumb, and we just got to know each other and wound up working on Ghost World together. And I find him just, he's to me, he's just the funniest guy in the world, sort of unintentionally sometimes. He's just, he's got this really hilarious dark worldview and it just almost everything he says cracks me up even after all these years and and the my main goal in in writing this film was to write something that terry would would respond to and it was really the first thing i ever wrote in my whole career that was written for a very specific audience and that was for terry zweigoff <laughs> yeah i'm not sure he uh He's uh, emblematic of the audience at large out there, but but you know, for me, it's it's gratifying to hear him laugh when he's reading the pages. Anyway, when did you find out that? Because um, Ghost World was your first comic that was developed into a film, correct? Yes. Okay. When, when did you find out that that was going to be a film, and what was that experience like for you? I mean, you know, we started working on it. Um, I don't know, in 1997 or 98 or something. And then, you know, and we had a pretty decent version of the script by 1999, I would say, if not earlier. And then it was two long years before we got the financing for it. So it was, that was just a horrible draining experience. And, you know, now I could go through it because I sort of know what to expect. But at the time, you know, when you're, you're here, you hear things like, yeah, on Wednesday, they're going to make their decision. And then you sit by the phone all day Wednesday and you never hear anything and you can't get anybody on the phone. And, then it's Thursday and it's Friday and then it's another two weeks and just draining, you know, because you're you're sort of gearing your whole life for this thing to happen where you're going to have to, you know, move to L.A. and work on this film for, for you know, two months or whatever. And so it's it, it was really kind of a draining experience. So by the time it was actually made, I was so kind of beaten down that I kind of lost a lot of the excitement <laughs> of, of, of you know, having it made, it was it was uh, almost like a consolation prize. In your writing, there's a lot of uh, like loneliness, rep- repressed sexuality, um, gen- gen- general out- outcastness in your characters, um, and you write it with such authenticity. Uh, how, how how do you get to that point? Or you know, I'm sure you're probably drawing from experience, but re- maybe reliving experiences that were. Um, I, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm writing what uh, the kind of things that that are sort of primal in my unconscious, you know. And I was, uh, I think, I was quite a lonely, repressed adolescent, and I, and I think, you know, that certainly lingers into adulthood, and and so I'm, I'm interested in exploring those kinds of issues, and those things have a sort of a visceral appeal to me so you know really especially in writing the comics um you know you you have to devise stories that will keep you interested over the span of of a year of sitting down at a drawing board in a room by yourself looking at a blank piece of paper and so the stories better have some some sort of primal emotional interest to you or you'll never get through it and so that's you know it all comes from stuff that that's part of me i guess and your wife, she she was uh, she knew of your work before you guys. She, you know, it was it was a weird situation where she had a boyfriend who was a fan of mine, and she was getting my autograph for him, and then and then uh, we got to talking, and then she wound up getting rid of the boyfriend for me. <laughs> it was kind of an ugly scene for a while there. Yeah. So and so is she. Um, does she still? Does she read your work while you're doing it? Is she kind of your uh, editor in the background? It's we have a very we have an odd detente in our home where uh, where excuse me 
where she has to, uh, you know, she has to be very careful about what she says because, you know, early on when we first got together, I would be working on something and she'd sort of not respond well to something. And then I'd, I'd be haunted by it and I'd have to, you know, I'd, what's wrong with this? And she, oh, nothing, it's fine. And so now she has to have this kind of blank poker face and not really comment on anything until it's all kind of done. And then she's sort of required to to say something fairly upbeat so I don't go into a black depression so it's I, I don't envy her because <laughs> yeah. she's really the only audience I care about in a certain way when you were in art school did you ever have to um figure draw a man who had no pubes and was totally shaved like the scene in the in the movie oh, wow. <laughs> oh you know that's funny that's funny I mean that the actor brought that himself to the thing and it's it, the guy he was sort of based on was actually extremely hairy but i don't think he was willing to to let that happen but we had lots of interesting uh interesting figure drawing experiences you know i, I was i went to school out in a really bad neighborhood in brooklyn and so it was like you know the the attractive figure models didn't want to like take two subways to come out and pose out there so we'd get we'd really get some strange specimens i often think that's where my sort of grotesque uh, drawing style came from was you know drawing all these odd you know 65 year old men uh you know in figure drawing class oh. it was you know we had a um a great time once when one of the this male model got an erection and <laughs> while he was posing and he uh he pretended to be asleep which was an odd thing to do, I thought, and uh, and everybody was sort of uncomfortable. Nobody said anything, and then finally, this this kind of suburban girl pointed at him and said, "Do we have to draw that?" <laughs> you know, I think everybody has one of those stories if they go to art school long enough. Yeah. And what was the answer regarding drawing the erection? I don't know if there was an answer. <laughs> everybody sort of it was sort of relieved this horrible tension in the room, and every, everybody laughed. I don't remember what the model did. I think he just c- continued to pretend to be asleep, yeah. which you know maybe that is the way to go. <laughs> did it finally go down? It it did ultimately. I think everybody laughing probably uh, probably <laughs> did that too. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was thinking. You know of of like you know war atrocities or something trying to get get it to go away (laughs) Poor guy. yeah i know i felt bad for the guy (laughs) daniel close this week's guest on pirate cat radio and drinks with tony of course i got him to talk about the penis it's always about the penis or masturbation or erections and thank you daniel close for being our guest this week his film the film he scripted Art School Confidential, out now, directed by Terry Zweigoff, who also directed Ghost World and Big Santa. Go check it out. Funny film. Okay. um, Weekly 666 coming up in about five minutes. But first, here's a... Let's see. What is it? Dead Can Dance. Doing a track called Song of the Sybil. I'm Drinks with Tony. This is Pirate Cat Radio. (laughs) 